to the back and go with your teachers. Get so much quieter when they head out. Head out. All right, we are going to continue our journey through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. So if you have a physical Bible, you can turn there. If you've got a device, you can go ahead and swipe there. Uh, when we read through this, uh, you'll also be able to follow along in the screen behind me if you'd like to do that. Um, the author Solomon, the preacher Solomon, uh, has been on this quest searching uh, he's run after pleasure, he's run after many things trying to find life and wisdom and fulfillment. And he keeps finding things that don't satisfy. And his basic synopsis is everything under the sun is vanity. It's vain. And this morning we're going to find him again searching. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. We're going to pick it up near the end of that chapter in verse 16. So let me read our text, and then we'll, we'll talk for a bit. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know, both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Let's pray. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to look at your word and ultimately to look at you. And I pray that you would show yourself to us in these moments, that you would show us our need of you and show your sufficiency in the midst of that need. And so God, 
Come and meet us, speak to us, convict us of sin, encourage us where we are discouraged. Be everything that we need in these moments and more. For you are good, you are God, you are everything that we need. So may our eyes be fixed squarely on you in these moments. In your name I pray, amen. So what we find uh, going on in these verses is Solomon is searching again. He's searching again, and then he's going to find some things. And then after he finds those things, he's going to tell us what we are to do with what he has found out. So let's look first at the search that he is undertaking. Uh, isn't it interesting that Solomon is still searching, right? Trying to fit the pieces of the puzzle together. This is what he's been doing for eight chapters. But I was encouraged by this reality because this man who was gifted this gift of wisdom from God, smartest man in the world, has this reservoir of wisdom at his disposal, still couldn't put it all together. And when I look at Solomon in this regard, I'm like, I can see myself. It's kind of a mirror because there's so many times I'm slow to learn as well. And so I look at Solomon in this regard and it encourages me because here is this man who was given the gift of wisdom, who was uh, selected by God to be the king of Israel, and yet here he is still struggling in this regard. He's still vexed by this thing called life, trying to figure it out. But I love how honest he is here. He says, I saw all the work of God. That man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. There is so much mystery in this life. Day in and day out, we walk through life and we wonder why do certain things happening, happen to us. There's mysteries surrounding God and his ways. And I don't know about you, but, but does this ever frustrate you? Like this reality that you walk through seasons of life, you, you encounter and endure circumstances that you would prefer not to have to endure. Do you ever wonder, like, God, what, what are you doing? Does this ever frustrate you, that you just don't have answers to everything that's going on. I think for many of us, we oftentimes feel like we have a right to know. We should be brought into the inner circle of God, and, and he should show us his reasons for maybe causing certain things or allowing other things. And when we're not, we'll question God. We'll question his qualifications. We'll doubt his goodness. And, and the funny thing is, if we look at our own lives there's many times that we probably struggle to manage our own work, right? Like the list gets long, we feel overwhelmed by all that we have to do, and yet oftentimes we might look at the work that God's doing and question what he's really doing, as though we're going to be his judge. Romans 11, verses 33 and 36 read this way. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. God is far beyond us. He knows all. He is sovereign in all situations, and he is good, and he desires our good. His ways are unsearchable, 
for us. So, in the midst of mystery, in the midst of our not understanding certain things, we have this temptation that it could cause us to be frustrated with God, at times to even doubt Him or His goodness. But, but I would encourage you to, at times when you encounter this mystery, this not understanding, to actually be encouraged by that. Because you're feeling the distance between yourself and God. And this is the kind of God that we want to worship. A God who is much farther beyond us, who's far above us. If we could put God in a box, we could figure out everything that he's doing, he's not much of a God at all. So when you feel that mystery, as difficult as it may be at times to press into that, to trust God and say, I'm giving myself to you, submitting to you in this believing that you are good, you will accomplish good. And, and I'd encourage you, just worship him in the midst of these times where we are prone to feel uncertainty. But I love what Solomon is essentially stating here. He's, he's basically saying that wisdom is understanding, I am not wise. Wisdom is understanding, I am not wise. So this is Solomon's search. Now let's look at what Solomon found as he was searching. First thing that he finds is he sees that people are in God's hands. In verse 1, he sees that people are in God's hands. Typically, it's a comforting idea that we would be in God's hands. In the face of disaster and carnage in this world, many people will offer prayers to God for protection or for healing or for comfort. In John 10, 28, Jesus says that he will never let, be, let anyone be snatched out of his or his father's hand. This is a massive promise that God gives to his people. No one can steal us from his hand. It's intended to be a great comfort, but yet we don't find Solomon comforted at all. Why is he not comforted? In verse 1, it also says he doesn't know whether he's in God's hand because of love or of hate. He's questioning, does God love him or does God hate him? Is he falling into God's loving hands or is he falling into God's judgmental, angry, wrathful hands? And I think to, to get at what Solomon's talking about here, it's good for us to remind ourselves of the time frame in which Solomon is living. He's living in a time that's prior to Jesus. So in a time that's referred to, where God's relationship to his people is referred to as the Old Covenant. So I would summarize, one way that you could summarize, and I would summarize the Old Covenant is in this way. God telling his people, obey my rules and you will be blessed. Disobey my commands and you will be cursed. So Solomon feels the terror of uncertainty because he knows that he's in the camp of disobedience. But this is, this is an uncertainty that we do not need to live under post-Jesus. The fact that we can look back and see who Jesus is and what he's done. We don't need to live with the same uncertainty. But the reality is, many of us still live this way. We still live as though we're operating under the old covenant, as though that's still in effect, because we think that God will accept us or approve us based on our willingness or capability to obey him. But 
that he will also trade us in for a more productive team member when we disobey. And the reality is that that's a fearful thing because God's love then is based on us. Our acceptance in God, us being snatched out of God's hand is based on us, not on God himself. And that is a terrifying thing. And and the reality is for many of us, we want the safety of being on God's team, but we'd rather not give up everything that's commanded. So we'd like to play the same game as Solomon, right? Pursue pleasure in all these different ways. Try to satisfy ourselves in those ways and still have God as a fallback plan. And this is why we oftentimes feel uncertain, because we're still not submitted to God. And this takes us back to what we talked about last week, this reality that God calls us to submit to him, not not so that we would be um, angry at him or oppressed by him. He calls us to submit to him for our joy, because he desires us to be filled with his joy. And so we don't we don't submit to God as he defines the terms. We, we try and submit to God uh, in a way that we, we write the terms ourselves. And, and this isn't God at all. Not God at all. And so it's good for us just to stop and ask, right now or, or other times, like, have you entrusted yourself to Jesus? And, and for any of us who've been Christians for a long time, that, that's not even a question, maybe, that, that we wrestle with. But today, have you really entrusted yourself to Jesus? Or, or are you just on autopilot, just kind of going through the motions? And, and if you have, what does that look like? What has that looked like today for you to say, Jesus, you are king. You are Lord. You're over me. I'm submitting to you. What does that look for the way that you spend your time today, for the way in which you interact with others, for, for how you eat, for how you view, few, view food today, for how you engage in, in whatever activities you'll engage in throughout this day. And, and if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, how do you, do, do you interact with him as one who's loving, as one who is Do you view God as that, as abounding in steadfast love? Do you view him as someone who's holy, as he reveals himself in that way? Are you scared of him, of what God might do to you? In my 20s, I went through this period of time where I was paralyzed by fear, absolutely paralyzed that God was displeased with me. And so I just found myself scared of God. And, and this just kind of hung over me every day. And, and it was, it, it led me into depression and, and um, it, it was just a pretty dark time in my life. I, I felt like God actually wanted to hurt me or to harm me. And, and I just, I wasn't seeing God for who he was uh, at all. Because obviously if God wanted to hurt or harm me, like he could do that, right? And so 
um, I walked through this time, and, and I was just scared every day, scared. Every time I would get sick, I would, I would think, like, this is cancer, or I'm going to die from this sickness. I was scared of dying. I was scared I was going to lose my wife. I was just scared of so many things and all the time. And so I had to engage in this process where I had to go and uncover a lot of misperceptions about who God was. And what I found is that my picture of God was not as God revealed himself in the Bible. My picture of God, the God that I was, I, I had in my mind that I was worshiping was very law-based. Obey him and you will be blessed. Disobey him and you will be cursed. And so anytime that I would disobey God, I would feel like it's over. It's over. And the reality is no one wants that. No one thrives in that. And, and it's not as though I've come out from that and say, oh, well, God doesn't really care whether I obey or disobey. He just loves me. No, no, this has motivated me to want to grow in holiness because I see his goodness, his patience, his kindness with me. And so the picture that we get of, Bi of God throughout the Bible is not one where he's, he's this onerous taskmaster just waiting with his red pen, waiting to give us red check marks or to break out his whip on us whenever we disobey. I mean, especially when we go to the cross, kind of the central point of the Christian faith. This is not who Jesus is. He is a God of love. Yes, holiness as well, and we don't de-emphasize that at all because clearly that's what's being accomplished in the cross, but he is a God of grace. He is a God of grace, and so we're called to rest in that. So we, when Solomon is talking about being in God's hands, we have the benefit of being on the other side of Jesus. And this idea of resting in God's hands is intended to bring us comfort. And the fact that nobody can snatch us out of God's hands is intended to be a promise that should bolster us day in and day out. Now Solomon feels the angst of kind of this love-hate paradigm because he's looking out at the world and he's realizing something. And this is the second thing that he found. He found that the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked. So in his mind, he thinks that the righteous people should be riding like the Mercedes-Benz of horses in, in that day and living this good life. But he struggled to find any righteous people anywhere. We talked about that last week. He knows the ones that are in the castles or on the thrones that they're not righteous as well because he knows himself. So he can't conclude that the wicked people have all of the good stuff taken from them just because they broke God's rules. He looks out at the world and he sees this thing that he deems evil. He says, the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. He looks at this and he says, that's evil. That's evil. What Solomon calls evil is what we know as common grace. The idea that God extends kindness or 
goodness to all of humanity. In Matthew 5, Jesus describes his father as the one who makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In that same passage, passage also talks about how God is the one who loves his enemies and calls his followers to do the same. Now, when we think about this whole idea of common grace or grace in general, uh, we'll react differently to this paradigm based on how we're doing uh, on any given day. So if we view ourselves as kind of the righteous on any given day, we'll probably make the accusation that what God is doing is unfair, right? Like how, how can he be kind to those people who don't act like me, who don't trust like I, who don't have devotions like I do, who don't pray like I do? How can he be kind to those people? On other days when we're able to identify that we are the wicked, that, that we do need help, that we need to be saved, at times we may gratefully and humbly receive, uh, that we're grateful and humble that we don't receive what we really deserve. Or maybe at other times uh, we're entitled too. We might receive it in an entitled way as well. But in this, we find Solomon calling a good thing evil, which is something that we do many times in our own lives. Solomon's conception of God and how God works is filled with tons of mystery, tons of confusion. And we also still deal with this mystery of God. But many things for us have been clarified in Jesus. So when Jesus comes, he is the mystery revealer. Okay, so there's all kinds of mysteries that maybe are raised in the Old Testament, but then as Jesus comes, he begins to make sense of a lot of those mysteries. He shows us that he, if, if there's mysteries in the Old Testament, he kind of blows some of that fog away and helps us to be able to see more clearly and understand what's going on in the Old Testament. He's also known as a promise fulfiller. So in the Old Testament, we find tons of promises made right? And they seem like they haven't been kept. They're unfulfilled. But when Jesus comes, these promises are fulfilled. So Jesus is the mystery revealer and the promise fulfiller. He's also what we've talked about earlier in this series as the greater Solomon. So Solomon calls a good thing evil. And this is what we do all the time. We'll take these good things that God has given to us and then we pervert them in some way. We'll use them for our selfish or sinful indulgences. Now our ancestors, Adam and Eve, they were created good, but being created good didn't satisfy them enough. They had everything that they could have desired, but then they were talked into wanting something more, and, and so then they indulged in that. But that indulgence didn't satisfy them. And not only did it not satisfy them, but it also ravaged every good thing in them. But what's even more insane and what's even more mad is that we, like them, keep going back to those unsatisfying, death-filled lives. And so you'd think, when you look at Jesus, when he looks at all that has gone on here, everything that's gone wrong, how far humanity strays from him, that he would look at this and he would scoff. What is wrong with you people? But he doesn't. He comes into this fractured existence 
and the one who is completely good. No evil in him does the unthinkable. Knowing what he's doing, he takes on not just like a little bit of evil, he takes on all of evil ever. He becomes evil. He becomes sin itself. But unlike us, Jesus took on evil, not to indulge himself, but to kill death, to impale the power of sin. He did what we could never do because he understood this thing, that both the righteous and the wicked needed saving. So Solomon looked at it, and he he would say, well, if they're righteous, they deserve good. If they're wicked, they deserve bad. But Jesus comes, and he says, everyone needs saving. And so he came and he took upon himself the good deeds of the righteous and the wicked deeds of the evil because they all damned every person. And then third thing, this emphasis on the goodness of life uh, I think sinks well, marries up well with what Solomon also found here in in this idea that it's better to be alive than to be dead in verse 4. Um, so Solomon's continued retreat to this topic of death, he, he keeps coming back to it, suggests that he's a man who's lived a long life. Lived a long life chasing after many vain pleasures, but now he's coming to the end of his life, and he knows it, and he hears the footsteps of death. It's looming. He feels it, and it's heavy, and he finds himself wanting to be in the land of the living for he knows that's where hope resides. Hope resides in life, and he wants to be hope-filled. And so what he does here is he compares a royal majestic lion, the king of the jungle, as being envious or lower than a dog who is alive. This may not translate as well in our culture because dogs hold a much more revered position in our culture, but in that culture, a dog was viewed very differently. Dogs were rangy. They were despicable. They were scavengers. But Solomon is saying that even a despised animal that is alive is better than a revered dead animal. He's saying that death brings ignorance, that at that point we will know nothing, that death brings loss. It brings oblivion because we're quickly forgotten when we die. And I've found that the older that I get, the more I find myself thanking God for breath when I wake up in the morning, because I feel that. As I get older and and death seems closer on the horizon, I understand and I sense that the breath that I'm breathing is a gift. I I didn't do anything to deserve to wake up this morning, but I did. And so I trust that God has something for me in that day. So life is a gift. It's not guaranteed. It's not deserved. And yet, death is coming. Death is coming. But because of Jesus, we don't need to fear death. We don't need to fear death. There is a love that's offered to us that has defeated death. A love that drives out fear, a love that can't be measured. It's incomparable. There's a love that is patient and and is kind. 
It's a love that bears all things and believes all things. A love that hopes all things and endures all things. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says it's a love that never ends. Jesus' love for his own is a love that never ends. Life is better than death. This is what Jesus demonstrated with his death and resurrection. He went into death, but then came out of it victorious, showing his victory over that he is greater than death. And in, in his resurrection, he is demonstrating life is better than death. And so for those of us who are Christians, the intention is that we would be a people who abound with hope, who abound with hope. When we wake up in the morning, no matter what, what's on that to-do list, no matter what meetings await us at work, no matter what interactions or conversations we have to have with people, the gospel is intended to hold a place in our lives that's so pervasive and so, so powerful that we do not fear anything, especially death. Life is better than death. And that's why Jesus came, lived, died, and rose again so that his resurrection power would live within us, that we would be a people full of hope, abounding with hope. That, that's not like just if you have a bottle of water, it's not the last little sip of water of hope. It is overflowing, and that well does not dry up. We are to be abounding in hope. And so here's what Solomon says we should do with those three things that he found out. He says we should live lavishly in the grace of God. He says we should enjoy the many gifts that God has given to us, and we should understand all the things that are gifts from him. The food that we eat, we should eat that food with joy. The wine that we drink or the other drinks that we drink, we should drink those things with a merry heart. They are intended to be enjoyed. We should always be dressed for a party. We should enjoy our spouse. We should enjoy our friends as well, but we should enjoy our spouse. This is something that Solomon struggled to do. This is a man who chased after 700 wives, and he still could not enjoy his spouse. He chased after it, but could never find it. But he says, there is a joy there that God desires for us, so enjoy your spouse. This is the portion that God has given to you. Where, wherever you are in life, whatever lot God has given to you, don't covet something more. Don't covet something different. With the work that God has given to you, work with everything you have for God's glory. Enjoy your life. Enjoy your life. You know, a great testimony that Christians are able to give to a watching world in regards to God's goodness is really enjoying his gifts. Enjoying them in such a way that others understand that they're from God. So, not enjoying them to the point where they're an idol, okay? But enjoying them. Helping others understand this is a gift from God, but never letting these gifts become too important, that we need to orient our lives around these gifts, whatever it might be. 
We need to always understand that gifts that God gives to us are good because they come from God. Their goodness is attached to God. And once they're separated or divorced from God, their goodness goes away. The goodness of any gift is good because it comes from God. A couple points of gospel application for us this morning. First of all, we need wisdom to know what is good and what is evil. Because the reality is we have this tendency to take good things and make them evil. We'll worship them. Or we'll take evil things and we'll try to make them good. Tim Keller says this, Sin is not just the doing of bad things, but the making of good things into ultimate things. It is seeking to establish a sense of self by making something else more central to your significance, purpose, and happiness than your relationship to God. What good gifts in your life are not good for you? What gift have you been given that is now destroying you? That you once went to because you thought it served you well, but now you're serving it. What is, what is there in your life that you indulge in, but you would never think to thank God for because of the place that it holds in your life? For some of us, there might be some things that we just, we need to be done with certain things. Maybe for a season, maybe for life itself. But what is that thing or things for you? What good things are you perverting? What good things has God given to you that you're using for your glory and not his own? The reality is everything is given so that you would be reminded of God's goodness. And Jesus must be all. Every good gift is intended to lead you back to Jesus, to remind you it's all about Jesus. It's not about you. And then secondly, we continually need to identify with Jesus' death and his resurrection. When we are united with Jesus' death, we are engaged in this process of dying daily. Of dying daily. This is hard, right? There are things that we like. There are things that we cling to. There are things that we need to let go of. Dying daily is not easy. But there's this reality. Some of us may be we are fearful of physical death. But when faced with the prospect of physical death, if we're engaged in this process of dying daily, in a spiritual sense, we are readying ourselves for that physical death. We are training ourselves by engaging in this greater, ongoing, spiritual death. Dying daily to ourselves Reminding ourselves, this is not about me. This life is not my own. This is about Jesus. And so we need to identify with Jesus' death. And in this, sin and death are being brought 
to nothing in our lives. They're being emptied of power because sin and death hold no power when compared to Jesus. We oftentimes don't feel like that. Oftentimes sin feels like it's got a hold on us. But that's something we give to it. Jesus strips that away. He empties sin and death of its power if we will submit to him and we will trust in him. As we identify with Jesus' death, we also identify with his resurrection and the call is that we would be united with Jesus in his resurrection, living in the abundant hope and the power of his victory over sin and death. We are given this gift of power, resurrection power, way, way more power than any of us can even conceive right now. There's this vast amount of resource, of spiritual power that God gives and affords to us if we will give ourselves to him and trust ourselves to him. And so there's this continual call identify with Jesus' death and his resurrection. Think about that. Reflect on that. Live in that. Remind yourself, he did that for you. He did that for you so that we could identify with him and live, find life in and through Jesus Christ. I want to read a passage from Romans 6 as we close for us to just reflect on what the gospel does. For if we have been united with him, with Jesus, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Life is better than death. Grace is better than law. Jesus is life. This is what he says about himself. He is life. So look to him, trust in him, and hope in him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the reminders that you give to us. 
We thank you for all that you have accomplished in and through your life, death, and resurrection. I pray that you would remind us of that reality, of those realities in these moments as we respond to you now in song, as we reflect on who you are and what you've done, and we reflect on who we are, who you've called us to be. God, show us the ways in which we are not submitted to you, the ways in which we're taking good things that you have given to us and we are selfishly serving ourselves. God, thank you for your patience, your kindness, your steadfast love that's extended towards us. Help us to see this morning what an amazing gift that is to us. Remind us with a thud. Help us to feel it this morning, God. And I pray that we could get a glimpse of your glory, a picture of your greatness. You would draw us to yourself. You would increase our faith and our trust in you. In your great name, I pray. Amen. You guys stand with us. We're going to take a few moments to reflect on Jesus' death and resurrection by responding in song as well as observing the Lord's Supper and Communion. So this is a time for us to examine our hearts, to ask God to reveal maybe how we're not identified, how we're not united to Jesus right now. It's a time for us to confess our sins to God and to one another. So if you've never trusted Jesus before, I invite you to be united with Jesus by receiving his gift of forgiveness of sins. If you haven't trusted Jesus or if you find yourself uh, in this uh, space in life where you just, you're living in unrepentant sin, uh, the Lord's Supper communion isn't for you right now. But Jesus is. Jesus is. And Center Church is. So if you are a Christian trusting in Jesus' death and his resurrection for life and hope and salvation, we invite you to celebrate by remembering his life death and resurrection through partaking of the bread and cup which signify his beaten body and shed blood for our sins.